Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. And today is a guest episode with Eric Claussen, who has chosen The Moment of Bach. Today's moment is from the cantata Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben. Well, we're excited to have our first guest on today, Eric Claussen. He is a Lutheran pastor, and moreover, he is our brother-in-law. So, Eric, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Super excited to be here and to be the official first guest of A Moment of Bach. That's you right. Are. Yeah, super cool. I'll uh, tell my grandchildren about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a momentous occasion for sure, <laughs> but it is exciting for us. I mean... We sort of pictured this as being a podcast where a lot of different people could come on as, as guests, whether they are musicians or just people who are involved in maybe church music or church in some way, like you are with being a pastor, or really just anybody who likes the music of Bach in some way. And I think Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring is a great one for, for that kind of pick. But what do you think, Eric? Why did you pick this one? What do you love so much about it? Uh, well, I'm definitely not like a real musician more than just the basic hobby stuff. So I don't really understand like the uh, deep theory um, that you guys get into. I love hearing you guys explain it and you explain it to me very well, but I actually don't know embarrassingly all that many Bach pieces, just the most simplest. So this is one that I know, but it's one that I always love and I don't even know exactly why I love it. Um, I guess everyone, most people enjoy this. But I was telling you guys earlier, one of the reasons that I love this piece is the absolute delight that I get from it. And yeah. um, I don't know if you guys are like this, but in church work, a lot of times you uh, don't get to enjoy it. Um, you're so yeah. busy. You're thinking about stuff all the time and you don't get to like be in the moment. Um, but when this song comes on, a lot of times it's the prelude at our church. And it's like when it comes on, then I... I get to delight, I get to feel it and be like, oh yeah, I am doing this, you know, for delight. And this is, I get to be in God's presence. Yeah. And it just, I don't know, it brings me that pretty much every time I hear it. Um, and it brings me, yeah, it brings me back. That's why I love it. I don't know how the music does that to me, but it does. Yeah, I mean, time. well, just speaking of joy and Yezu joy if man is desiring, right? I'm sure we'll get into like the text in a, in a little bit here. It's not like literally a translation from the German. The literal translation is something closer to Jesus shall remain my joy. But I mean, it's it's about joy, right? So it makes you feel joyful. And it's also, I'm sure it's like that nostalgia too, because a lot of us have heard this piece for a lot of our life and it associated with really good moments, you know, like being played at weddings and stuff. I mean, I had this at my wedding, you know. We had oh, yeah. this as my wife walked down the aisle, That's played cool. on a on an acoustic guitar. 
Uh, a lot of people use this as their wedding, probably second to Puckle Bell's Canon, which is interestingly a a piece of a similar era, right? Just maybe mm-hmm. a couple of years, I think a generation before Bach, right? Would you say? Yeah, Christian? I think so. Puckle Bell. I think Puckle Bell was a generation before Bach, but it's it's a wedding song, you know. It gets used as, and it's also Christmas related too. People end up using it at Christmas, even though it's not quite when it was written for. They, they talk about this in an accompanying interview video with the Netherlands Box Society's performance of this cantata. And they sort of get into, like, why is this so famous? I mean, yeah. and it's, it's not really a very clear answer. It's a very subjective question. Like, why is it so nice? And they go, they go a little bit into how lovely and just, like, perfectly uh, beautiful that instrumental introduction is. And maybe it's that it has this comforting lilting quality it has these notes in groups of three you know that that one two three two two three bump 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 and actually this did come up on another episode where we discussed a cantata that had an opening that was pastoral yeah that was episode 12 yeah in other words the pasture and what bach was portraying there was a sense of calm and elegance, but also like a rustic outdoorsy sense, but definitely a reference, like a musical reference that everyone would have understood. And this has that same comforting quality. It's utterly smooth and peaceful. And it just goes on, you know, it doesn't, that, that line just moves on and on and on, and it's very, like, lulling. Is this supposed to be a pasture-esque kind of a scene also? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the likely... Like, that's the likely guess of, like, a music historian about this. Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm going to agree, because there are a few, like, musical clues to that. Like, there's the fact that it's got groups of three. There's also just the fact that it's in a particular key. It's in G major. A lot of the pastoral stuff was in G major. It's, I don't think it's as overt of a reference as some of the other stuff we've looked at, and it doesn't mention the first batch of text doesn't necessarily mention Jesus Christ as the shepherd, I think. But it's still got those themes inherent in it. Jesus loves me and entrusts himself to me. That's why I shall not leave Jesus, even though my heart should break. And Jesus remains my joy, comfort. They loved the metaphor in this time period, the composers and, and the lyricists of Christ the shepherd, you know. Yeah, for sure. That takes care of you and takes care of his flock. And so his flock of sheep is us. Uh, we're the, the sheep and he's the shepherd. Makes sense. Still popular. I am Jesus, little lamb. Big yeah, head. Right. Oh. Yeah. The Lord's my shepherd is another one. Uh-huh. It's worth talking a little bit about the format of this work. It's based on a chorale tune that people would have known and that Bach knew, and that is happening when the choir comes in, right? But then that string thing you hear at the beginning of the movement is original by Bach. And that's the part that everybody really loves, I think. Yeah, I right? think so. That's the famous part, I think. And the chorale is the less famous part, although it's really typical of Bach. It's really like genius how he weaves that in and how the little triplets will stop and then it's just one, two, three, three beats per measure with the chorale but then once the choir's done singing then it goes back to the da 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 
can do whatever. Like I, I arranged a thing for this where I, I, I switched out that chorale with a different chorale tune, God's Own Child, I gladly say it. Oh, nice. For my daughter's baptism. And that was really cool. But I used the Bach. Da, 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 da. I used that. So, because yeah. of her name. Right, because of her name. Yeah, because of her middle name is Joy, so I wanted to use the Joy thing. Oh, but I then also that God's Very Own nice. Child is a baptism thing. So I, yeah, yeah. But no, but it's it's so versatile like that. It's so it's so simple, but it's just so like so recognizable, I guess. Okay, so I may be going out on a limb, but you guys did the episode a while back on the well-tuned clavier. What is yeah. that one? Yep. So that kind of reminds me of just you had that thing going, and then the the other guy put the Ave Maria over the top of it. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It just kind of seems similar. You have the I don't know instrumental doing all sorts of stuff, and the right. voices. Over top of yeah, it. for sure, and and that's what Bach did a lot. He he took the existing tunes, and then he arranged his own material like over it or with it or whatever. Like that was very common of the era. Yeah, it's not completely unlike a cover of of a song where yeah. is you, it more like a mashup? It yeah, is more like a maybe, mashup, except yeah, for be, or or like a mashup of one song, but then the other song is your original song. God, yeah, it's be... it's a lot. It, it's like a cover in that it's your surrounding material, but someone else's like main yeah. uh, musical notes, as if that makes sense. I think so. You yeah. get sued for that today, though. The co- yeah, copyright <laughs> yeah. makes things very tricky these days. That's oh. for sure. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, Bach would take something of Vivaldi's and reorchestrate it. It was just. It was not against the law to do that without asking Vivaldi or his estate or whatever, whoever owned the copyright, because that did not exist. Copyright right. did not exist, and and it was considered an honor to use somebody else's piece like that. But but now we have copyright, which is intended to protect um, artists, you know, or at least that's the uh, in the ideal world, that's what it is. But like you said, Christian, that is a double-edged sword. You mentioned that in the the Brandenburg Three episode. That that's a double-edged sword too. Yeah, people abuse it sometimes, and there have been some public and infamous lawsuits recently. How uh, some pop singers' lawyers used some legal language to basically abuse that that principle and make it less about the music and more about just money. Yeah, which is a shame. But the good thing is, is that this this little thing by Bach here is in the public domain so you can use it <laughs> right Whew. the yeah. only thing the only thing about music of this time period that's not in the public domain are the recordings themselves so right. um but if you like you can feel free to make your own cover of this you know and that's what people do people arrange this all the time like alex you said you had a guitarist at your wedding who did this and no one's going after him because this music is old enough to be public domain right yeah i've heard this in pop songs or like electronic versions or all these different things and it's really cool and i love it and i remember one time hearing it when i was young and i was like oh this is so cool what is this oh my goodness it's bach what right that's crazy i don't know it's so i think it's so accessible that it doesn't seem like it was written 300 years ago it seems comfortable for the modern mind yeah there really is something special about it i think this is the perfect example of why bach is so like eternal and timeless because this this particular piece just shows you how many different directions people go with it today now it has an english text that's 
very different from its original text. But Bach is like pliable. His music is flexible and it is very arrangeable. It lends itself to that, you know. Yeah, there's a famous piano arrangement that is kind of what made this famous when the yeah. piano arrangement by Myra Hess. When that arrangement was made available, that kind of made this movement of this cantata more famous. And that's kind of what launched it into the classical mainstream, you could say. And then now, of course, it's enjoyed a lot of hype <laughs> in the classical world. Yeah, because this was not this was not a thing that stands alone. That's something we should mention. This is part of a huge cantata, a cantata which was an early draft of one of Bach's earlier cantatas, and then he later used and made into this one, the Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben cantata, and no one thinks of it as that anymore. Like, no one knows what that is. You know, they mentioned that in the Netherlands Bach Society interview. No one knows this cantata, even though it's got great other parts too, which is a shame. People only know this famous part, but this is from a larger thing, you know. But it does seem like Bach knew that this little bit was the best because he did repeat it. <laughs> it's the thing he repeated. Uh-huh. Well, it's movement give the people six. What they want? Exactly. It's movement six and ten. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. We, well, we should talk about like the pastor's perspective here with Eric here because I mean that's kind of a cool part of it. Like we have to guess at a lot of this, although there's some there's some record of it. But like we have to guess a lot of the sort of vibe of the church services back in box day at the Thomas Kirka, which is where he was and had just started working when he arranged this cantata the way that it is now. And I know that people came to see the music of Bach in the church. Sometimes there were kind of like those people, but then there were also the devout churchgoers who were there for the whole thing with the, the sermon and the scripture and the communion and all that, um, a Lutheran church. So, yeah. Well, I wish I knew more about that time period, the 1700s, at least in the Lutheran church, is not my specialty or my forte. If you ask me about the 1500s or before, I probably know hmm. a bit more. But um, I'm really curious to know, yeah, what would have Bach's relationship have been with the pastors of the church? Um, what I wonder, like, were they annoyed with him that he would, like, stole all their thunder? Like, they're not coming for me. <laughs> they're coming for this guy. And uh, what what that was like, if uh, if it was a good relationship or not. I'd like to think that Bach got along well with uh, everybody. Um, at least his music is, uh, I don't know, I feel like he just knows he's so good enough that he's relaxed and he doesn't care. Do we know that much about Bach's personality in that way? If he was friendly or humble or uh, easygoing or anything like that? We have a couple of like infamous stories of him being a little cantankerous, especially at his job before this, where like the players weren't really up to snuff and he like called one of the bassoonists like a weenie bassoonist or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's very possibly not real anyway, Apocryphal. but yeah, but, but, um, but no, I mean, we mostly have this like report of Bach as being like a very, not that <laughs> as, as a very professional guy, but yeah, as a, as a real person as like a, how, how would he have gotten along with the pastor? I don't know. I know that the past, that the sermons were usually very long, like an hour and the pews were typically filled up, especially during those years when Bach was there, it was a pl- it was the place to be. The Thomas Kirka people were really, um, really into going to that church. And yeah. I mean, I wonder if that was a combination of elements, not just about Bach, because like we've talked about before on this podcast, he was not that well known as a composer in his lifetime. He's more known as an organist, but the Thomas Kirka choir was well known as being a good choir. Mm-hmm. Right, we'd so think this church, it sounds like they'd have the best stuff. So you'd think that they'd probably have good preachers 
also, or at least competent ones. But I do wonder about that relationship. I don't know if you guys like at churches. It's very easy to get complex relationships. And uh, oh yeah, I mean, I, I've I've heard a pastor say before. He said, "I'd rather deal with terrorists than church musicians." <laughs> which I don't know if that's I, Maybe I won't a say little bit of hyperbole, but yeah, but Boy. just that it, it it can be at the church. You obviously want to be gentle and humble and uplifting, but also you want excellence. So how do you balance those two? That is it's not great... always easy. That is a great conundrum. He must have he must have uh, got along well enough with the Leipzig staff because they allowed him to write so much music consistently for so long. That's at least my thought on that. Yeah, but that is a that is a thing that churches struggle with a lot because you want to have like volunteers be a part of your musical ensembles because you want to allow people in your church to express their talents to worship God, but then at the same time you want excellence and you want to you're going to have to spend money to hire pros sometimes but then are you going to hire pros that are only like pe- members of your church also because that's going to be really tricky no you probably hire pros from like instrumentalists from outside your church and then they're not maybe a part of your church like culture so it, it, there's always those little weird tensions with right. church musicians and pastors you know what i find really interesting is like the sort of side of it of the musical preaching of bach and how these pieces they sometimes had scripture references. They sometimes had scripture just verbatim in them. But then a lot of them are like based on hymn tunes and sometimes based on like poetry that Bach would, his collaborators would write for these cantatas and stuff. So I wonder they must have been received well because he kept on doing that, right? right. But yeah. but I wonder, well, like, how do you feel about this kind of thing as a pastor? Sometimes you are, I mean, probably very focused on correct doctrine and all that, as well as giving a meaningful and inspiring like message and making sure you preach the gospel and all that. Like, then what about the side of it, of the music when it's not, or when it is, but also when it's not like jiving with that, or maybe it seems a little like not specific enough or not, or maybe it just is not theologically good for you. And you're like, I don't know what to do about that. You know? Yeah. Well, I've, I've definitely had to have those conversations before where some song came out and it was, just not good theology or just yeah not good like just sappy or or just not the right feel like for instance with good friday you're going for a very specific feel and everything needs to be consistent yeah. uh, and if you have a song that's not fitting in that feel it's going to break the whole flow of the service yeah. um, so there have been times where i've i've had to you know sit down and talk with a, a musician or music director and say this just isn't the direction that we need to go and it has to be unified and sometimes it even has to be like listen i know this is your thing and this is what you'd like to do but we have to unify it we have to make it all point in the same direction so maybe that's good for some point but it's it's not good for right here although i feel like with for the pastors who much must have been with block they could have said hey listen you're gonna set the tone and i'm gonna match it Um, because that can happen too Hmm. Uh, and if you know something's really good you say okay i've heard this music and i know these words i'm actually going to now match my sermon to what you've already started and there have been times where i've been trying to write a sermon or or convey something and then i'll hear something in a hymn and it'll just be like one verse and i'll say wow that one verse tried to just captured what i was trying to capture in you know 10 minutes um Hmm. and that is something i really enjoy with bach is the poetry and the feeling that he conveys and a lot of times as pastors, we're trying to use stories and metaphors and all these things to capture these these same ideas and not just preach to the mind, but to the heart. Yeah. But especially with box music, with really good hymns, 
I'm just sometimes I'm just amazed that it can accomplish the same thing that we're trying to accomplish so much easier, not easier, but so much more quickly. Yeah, in um, terms of actual clock time, like right. Yeah, like if you want to talk about the delight of the Lord, um, you know, you can use all these metaphors and stories. Um, you can try to uh, deconstruct it. But then you just hear this little melody, and it's like, oh, that's what delight is. Now I understand. That is that a great delight. point. Um, and yeah, so mm. sometimes when it happens, it can be a real joy as a pastor because you can just say, well, that's it. Or just remind people, hey, what we just experienced—that's that's it. That's what we're talking about. I just mm. had it in a sermon this morning where there was a beautiful line, and it was actually in a, a praise song. But I said, well, that's think about that thing that we just said or that we just sang together, because that captures the same thing I'm trying to say. Right, and the spirit of what they had just heard musically like was was the emotion that you you wanted to get to probably. Right. And and that's that's a great point. I I watched a great video by Adam Neely who's an amazing music content creator on YouTube, does stuff about music a lot. He's very high quality stuff. And he did a like TED Talk, I think it was, and it was about this very thing. And his point was like why do we have musicians at weddings? Why do we have a band at a wedding or an organist or whatever? You don't just not have music at a wedding. That would be very weird. Right. And his point was what you're saying, which is that you need to experience the joy, like the joy. You you need to express that. You can't just tell somebody in words, like, be happy. Right. Or like, do you remember what it's like to feel happy? Because what that does is make them like think intellectually about it. Yeah. And if you're delivering a really good sermon, I think you can get people emotionally put into an emotional place. I'm not saying that you can't. Of course, you can really get there. But like Christian said, clock time, right? Yeah. Music can really just trigger that for you. And on the other hand, music's weakness is that it can't get into really specific things of communication like language can. You can't say a really complex sentence and make everybody feel the same thing in music. It has to be, it is very subjective. But when you can do something like this, like Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring, and I think this goes back to why it's so effective, it is so joyful and just so light and free and soul uplifting to so many people. It just, it triggers that for so many people that it fulfills the purpose of music perfectly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when paired with the words, you get the deeper thing also. And I guess that's that's what's so beautiful. And what do they say? You guys have probably heard this before. What are the two things Lutherans are supposed to do well? It's theology and music. And I think I've heard that's one of the ways they justified the gigantic new music and theology building they have at Concordia Irvine, oh, nice. right? <laughs> yeah. But that is like, that's always been our specialty. And I think we would say, well, let's point to uh, Martin Luther, one of the best theologians of all time. He's one of our guys. And let's point to Bach, the, maybe the greatest composer of all time. Right. And he's one of our guys. But those two things together, yeah, they, they powerfully hit both the intellect and the soul, the emotions, seed of emotions. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, music has that power that nothing else really has. And it's not its not a language. You know, that's the thing is that to get really picky about definitions, like people use a, an inspiring phrase, music is a language or music is the universal language or right. whatever. And that is, I understand that idea. And I think that if we all understand what a person means when they say that, then that's fine. But music is also literally not a language. Like if you talk to a linguist, right? Because you're not communicating complex abstract thought communicating being the key word there through music music is the enrichment of the soul and here you could be singing words which makes it somewhere in between but it's it's a more holistic experience than talking i guess yeah yeah 
according to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, though, it is a language, at least at least from what I remember. Oh, yeah, I guess it could be, if you're going to talk to aliens. If you're going to talk to aliens. I mean, I don't see why it couldn't be. It could also be a language. But then you'd have to, everyone would have to agree on what but right, every note means. Right, then you'd still have to define it, yeah. and you'd have to get into the same thing all language gets yeah, and, into. Yeah, and just, just visualizing that, I think that would, if you had a language that really was made out of like pitches and tones in, the, in, in our, our scale system and stuff like that, then it would, it would stop being music. Right. It would not be music anymore. It would be a language. To communicate Because it wouldn't be doing the function of music anymore. It would just be like saying words. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's deep. And and it would what it would be doing is it would be like nailing down these certain pitches to certain like concrete words and functions and stuff, and then it and then it would not be subjective as music is anymore. It would kind of take all the flavor and interest out of music. That would be really sad. Let's right, not like do if, that. If a, if a C minor if a C minor chord meant chair, <laughs> then that would be useful, but it would strip C minor of its the C minor chord of its. Um, power to make us feel a certain way yeah and, right. and in context with the c with the c major chord that was just played before it or in context with the the f minor like key that you're in or whatever like all those contexts are so important in music and yeah. how the thing just leads you on it's it's based on time right it's 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 a temporal art and so you'd, you'd lose all that because now c minor would just mean chair anytime you you played c minor or sang a c minor triad arpeggiated or whatever that would just that would That'd be really sad for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would really be a different thing entirely. And then on the other hand, you've got this perfect music by Bach, which is the exact reason why why music, why the subjective quality of music is still, even though it's subjective, it still manages to, to really tug at the heartstrings of most people that hear it. Right. Well, it does. It communicates, but just in a different way, at a different level. Right. And gives that delight yeah and it's interesting like i was that um example at the beginning of a church service when i hear that and usually beginning of a church service i don't know how you guys feel but like i'm kind of stressed and i'm thinking about okay what are all the things i need to say at this point at this point at this point how's all how's everything going to flow together all these things and if someone just whispered to me like hey don't worry about it jesus loves you delight in the moment i'd be like oh that's nice thank you for for making me think that but then i hear this and it just happens Naturally. It makes you feel that. Right. And all of a sudden, all the other stuff kind of melts away, at least for a moment. And I get to enjoy it and be at peace and delight. It just happens. It's not even something I have to think about. It just happens. It's yeah. the power of music. And it's not... We said that it takes up maybe less clock time than speaking it, the same sentiment. But also, music's power is to stretch and warp time to us too like it like you're saying like you can think in the moment if you're listening to music and that might not feel like that if you're just passing time silently and like in the context of a worship service having that music even eric like you said having an instrumental prelude be like someone playing yesu joy man's desiring can put you in a space momentarily that will set you up for the rest of the service and that was that's just a moment for you you know, right. a moment of Bach, if oh, you will. How about that? <laughs> nice. So I just spent a bunch of time talking about how great um, the, the music and the melody is, but I'm actually only recently familiar with the actual words of the chorale, but they're great. Uh, so I guess this is part six, says, 
I am blessed to have Jesus, oh how firmly I hold him, that he might refresh my heart. When I am ill and sad, I have Jesus who loves me and entrusts himself to me. Oh, that is why I shall not leave Jesus, even though my heart should break. You know, I'm going to be straight with you. That that totally could be like a praise song, I think. Yeah. Like, it's I, it's kind of got the same flavor. I don't know. Uh, you know, a lot of these, we've talked a little bit about this, but a lot of these texts from this time, it's very emotionalism driven and it feels more at home with like contemporary Christian praise music than with than with the hymns we might call traditional nowadays. The words do. The words do. Not the music. Yeah, the music the sounds traditional. The words and the words are often first person like this. Yeah. Right? And a lot of times like in the passions and the, the stuff where the libretto was composed, it actually kind of is rather emotional and uses love allegory. Like we've talked about the love duet in the Vakatauf cantata. And some people's opinion, it's like a little too much. Yeah, like wedding <laughs> wedding stuff between the the groom, Jesus, and the bride, his church. And the Vakadalf one uses text from Song of Solomon in there. Yeah, that's not a the, steamy. <laughs> not the racier stuff, but um, but it does use Song of Solomon in there. And it's it is not. I mean, these things go in these things go in phases with the how the church feels about this stuff. And during this time, it was a little more acceptable to have this more emotional text. Yeah, it was in fashion then, just like contemporary praise music, it's that kind of text is in fashion again. And listen to how different the the one that you, the listener, might know. The English the English words for Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring, which by the way is completely different, like a different text. Right. And look at how old this sounds and completely unlike the Bach text that we're talking about and also unlike the worship and praise music that we have contemporary stuff now it goes yezu joy of man's desiring holy wisdom love most bright drawn by thee our souls aspiring soar to uncreated light word of god our flesh that fashioned with a fire of life impassioned striving still to truth unknown soaring dying round thy throne it's sort of like as poetic it's like <laughs> maximum poetry you know it's like someone yeah. tried so hard to make it as luxuriously poetic as possible. It's very different yeah, than... absolutely. Then the... The down to earth He will stuff. refresh my heart when I'm ill and sad. I have Jesus who loves me. Yeah, yeah. but but you know what that sounds more like? The the he will refresh my heart thing? It sounds more like the Psalms to this, me. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Hmm. And a lot of the Psalms are very uh, contemporary Christian music sounding <laughs> in a way. I mean, that's kind of a comeback I like to, to bring up when people hate on that music. But I mean, it's not... There's There's issues that I have too, of course, and it's a whole complex thing. But right. there's point, not enough enemies crushing me and, you know, things like that and bowls of bash and yeah. other stuff like that. Yeah, it can very it can be very easily watered down this music and we wouldn't want that to be in our church services if we're being honest with what we should be saying in yeah. worship. But but yes, I and there is that in these in these corrals. There is the darkness with the light. <laughs> but you get But yeah, I really do. like part ten, which is the repeat part, right? Yeah. So that's that's really good. I I think the first one's fine. It's okay, but the number ten is really good. Yeah. Should I read it? Sure. Yeah. All right. So this is the last part. Jesus remains my joy, the comfort and sap of my heart. Jesus wards off all suffering. He is the strength of my life, the joy and sun of my eyes, the treasure and bliss of my soul. Therefore, I shall not let Jesus out of my heart or sight. I feel like that's a little more powerful. Yeah. 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 
And that must have been the kind of thing that these German audiences really, really spoke to them. Right. Yeah, and some of these like idioms probably don't translate perfectly into English. Um, but it's interesting. You would never hear like the the comfort and sap of my heart. It just doesn't seem like a very understandable thing to talk about. But I think we get what what the author is trying to say there, right? Sap being like the sort of like lifeblood of the tree, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like the the very inside lifeblood of your of your soul, right? I think that's what I'm getting out of that. Now, is the author for sure Bach? Well, not of the text. Not of the text. Okay. Yeah, this particular, I have to look this up real quick. Looks like the text was written by Solomo Frank, who was the Weimar court poet at the time when Bach wrote the first version of this cantata. But the melody was was known already. Yeah, it would have been one of the hymns that they sang in church already. Yeah. So listening to this as a congregant, this church, you would hear this melody that you recognized with a text that was new, along with the instrumental adorning of it that was also new. Yeah, we still do stuff like this today. Uh, sometimes I have a, a great friend and collaborator who's a brilliant uh, author. whose name is Catherine Dubke, and she wrote a wonderful extra stanza for Great is Thy Faithfulness. And we used it and arranged it and the whole thing. And it became a good way to add a little bit of an extra dimension to a, some sort of worship service or setting or something like that. Cool. That's super cool. I want to use it. You should tell me about it. Or I'll send it to you. That'd be great. So something that's interesting is that we were talking about Bach's relationship with his pastors, and I think they're mostly good. But we do know of one situation where at the period of his life where he worked in Mühlhausen, where the pastor and Bach clashed a little bit and the pastor wanted more simple music because Bach was really interested in weaving together some very interesting, complicated things. And this pastor wanted it to just be a lot more plain and simple. So I think I think he did run into stuff like that sometimes. Well, that makes sense. I mean, a different vision of what it's going to be. And uh, the pastor has one vision and he has another vision. And that happens sometimes. Yeah. And you have to figure out, yeah. well, who's going to be the... Who's going to steer the ship? And it sounds like Bach, he left. So I guess the pastor ended yeah. up steered the ship. He got what he wanted. Bummer, man. He didn't know what he was missing out on. Yeah. It's interesting with something like Bach where we now, from the comfort of the future, we know that he was consistently good in everything he wrote. So it's not like the problem someone has with him is that they didn't like his music. It was probably more like they thought it was too strange or complex or maybe stole the show, like we've said, uh, or something like that. But I think it goes. It can go. In, that kind of conflict can go in a lot of different directions. Alex was mentioning Adam Neely. There's another Adam Neely video about praise music, and um, oh, yeah. it's a review, and it's a really interesting argument from the outside of religion, coming from the outside and looking in and thinking like, well, why, why is it a tradition in some cases in worship music? Why is it a tradition to make sure that the music is simple? And why not glorify God by using all of your musical training and making things interestingly complex when the words or whatever calls for it, the themes do. And to that argument, Bach would be the the best argument for that, which is just like, you can. You can use all of your musical resources in the service of the church like Bach did without ever coming across as egotistical or full of yourself. Right. Or pretentious or elitist. I know this was a problem around the time of Luther, and you guys probably know more about this than I do, but that a lot of times the the congregation was a purely an audience. In fact, all of the service 
even the some of the non-sung parts was done between the choir and the priest. Hmm. And actually the congregation wasn't involved at all. And yeah. it was kind of not done because, well, they can't sing that well. It's not going to sound that good. So forget about it. Let's just use the choir and that's what we're going to focus on. Uh, in fact, I went to a uh, a very old style Catholic service and that was still the case. Hmm. It was everything happened between the priest and the choir. Congregation said nothing. Oh, interesting. That seems like a little bit of a shame because, I mean, it makes sense why that has to be the case for some people, but also it misses out completely on the power of congregational singing. Right. Which it's, is really good for being a person who just shows up at a church service. It's really nice right. to be able to sing. Well, there that has to be the balance of accessible, like beautiful and wonderful and adorning, but also acceptable. That Right. You don't want it to just be a concert. Right. Exactly. Or seem like that. And then plus that gets back to the danger of the old days of leaving the congregation literally outside <laughs> or literally yeah. outside of a screen while things happen in the altar and it's like, well, the important people are doing stuff in Latin now, but I don't speak Latin, so I don't even understand what I'm looking at here. Yeah, absolutely. And the fine, yeah, the fine balance of beautiful yet accessible and showcasing parts of that beauty, but also not leaving anybody behind. And I guess that's the balance you have to find. Yeah. So this all just reminds me of Bach's introduction that he wrote to the Orgelbuchlein, which is like just the perfect encapsulation of his philosophy about his work. And that is that it says, to the glory of God alone in the highest and for the edification of my neighbor. Hey, that's good. Pretty good little statement there. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, that's like, yeah, we talk about vocation. It's like glory to God. He doesn't need your service, but do it to glorify him yeah. and uh, help your neighbor out. He needs it. Right. And the, the goal of a pastor, and you could tell me if I'm right here about this, <laughs> since you're a pastor, when you're doing your sermon is like, you want to be edifying people, right? And the ultimate thing is like the preaching the gospel part of it, right? Absolutely. As far as being a Lutheran pastor, Christian pastor. And as a music person at a church, if you're, if you're in charge of music, that should also be the goal, even though you're not the pastor. It's, it needs to be that, too. Yeah. Uh, that Bach clearly knew that is a testament to his greatness, besides just how great he was at composing. Right. And I, I'm, I've heard stories of people, and I think you guys have mentioned this before, who literally are, are brought to the faith through his music. I've heard people who, who knew nothing about Christianity, they heard his music, they learned more about what he was saying, and they came to faith through that, which is pretty incredible that he can use this medium to, again, convey that powerful of feelings. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, yeah. And now, here is the tenth movement of the cantata Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben, the chorale, beginning with the words Jesus bleibet meine Freude, known to many of us as Jesu joy of man's desiring.
If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this cantata, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Please rate and review us on your podcast app, and check out our website, amomentofbach.com, and our Instagram and Facebook page. Eric, do you want to tell us about your podcast? Uh, sure. So I also host my own podcast, uh, and it's called The Faithful Forebearers. And the whole purpose of my podcast is to each episode pick a different person in the history of the church and explain why their life was important and what we can learn from them and to be uplifted by their stories and inspired. Uh, currently, I'm going through a series on the Church of Ethiopia, which is a lot of fun. It's something I didn't know much about. The church has been part of Africa since the very beginning and Ethiopia for at least 1,700 years and what we can learn from the stories of many faithful men and women there. So uh, you can check me out on my Facebook page, Faithful Forebears. My podcast is also available on podcast players. And pretty soon, I'd love to have you two on. Actually, Christian, you've already been on my podcast yeah. once. Yeah. And we talked about Guillaume de Machot. Um, and that was once a lot of fun. So hopefully we will do that again. Uh, and the next one I want to have with you guys is going to be on the medieval Ethiopian composer, Yared. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but I'll figure out by the episode. Neither do I. <laughs> so, Eric, what was the name of your podcast game? Because I don't, well, I don't know anything about this podcast. What is this podcast all about? The faithful. Can you <laughs> did I say? No, did I not say enough? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, he did. There's a visual joke that's stupid on a podcast, but I'm wearing a faithful forebears T-shirt right now. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Obviously, I know about faithful forebears. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, he does have a super cool t-shirt on. Thanks for uh, wearing that. When are you guys I'm, getting some merch? Uh, I don't know. We should. Yeah. We, don't we have, have a great logo. Yet. As we said, we shouted out our artist, Sydney Lacombe. Great yeah. logo that she we'll did. We'll have to do that. We'll have to do that. Yeah. So check out the Faithful Four Bears. I just checked my t-shirt. That is right. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Nailed it. <laughs> so Christian... Which moment of Bach are we going to look at next week? We're going to look at a moment from the cantata Der Herr Denket an uns, BWV number 196. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Mm-hmm.